Romans 8, verses 28 to 39. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he may be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And our second reading is from Genesis 37, and I'll be reading from verse 1 to 36. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhal and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought, and he brought their, fa their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age. He had made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to, jo and Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off to the, from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem 
a man found him wandering around, around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of those, these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midian merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and, told, and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dip, dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. So, a remarkable story, profoundly historic, depressing in many ways, uh, but abiding. I mean, it's been around for 3,000 years, and we're going to examine it today, which I'm looking forward to doing that with you. So, keep your Bible open there, and I'm going to cruise around a little bit in, uh, in the book, and then we'll go from there. Let me pray. Father, we ask today for an epiphany, a revelation. We thank you for revealing yourself to Gentiles, non-Jews like us, ourselves here today, most of us. Um, guide us this evening to Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Today we're going to explore one verse in the book of Genesis, and we're going to explore the hand of God in the story of Joseph. That one verse is in Genesis 50, verse 20. Genesis 50, verse 20. If you kept your Bible open, uh, cruise forward to page 44. We're going to explore Genesis 50, verse 20, as it relates 
to the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. It goes like this, it's Joseph to his brothers. You intended harm to me, but God intended it, the harm you intended, God intended it for good. You intended harm, but God intended it for good. We're going to look at that verse as an introduction to the story of Joseph and also an introduction to our teaching theme for 2024 across the parish of Churchill, which is the hand of God in our world or the hand of God in our lives. That is, how does God make himself known? How does he guide us? How does he show his presence in the world and in our lives? How does he interact with the world? How does the transcendent God who has no hand, who has no body, how does the transcendent God become imminent, not just in the incarnation, although this is a big part of it, but in each moment in our lives and especially in all the mess because life is messy. Yes, yes. Life is complicated very complicated. Is that true for you right now? As Tom said, perhaps 2024 might be a difficult year for some people and you already got a sense that that's the case. Or perhaps life is messy or complicated for someone you love. We are in control of far less than we think we are. And so the question then is, is this, is God there? Is he present in the middle of the mess? Is there any order in the chaos? Any method in the madness? Any rhyme or reason? Has God left us as orphans as Jesus said he wouldn't? Has he left us alone to sort out the mess? So we're looking at the story of Joseph from Genesis for three weeks over summer. Not Joseph, the husband of Mary, 2,000 years ago, Rather, Joseph, for the oldies, that's Joseph of the, of the uh, amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, uh, if you know the musical. Joseph was sold to slavery in Egypt 3,500 years ago, and we've called the series The Hand of God in the Story of Joseph. That story is important for everyone who's ever asked questions about deeper order. Because you'll see, especially if you read these 13 chapters during the week, that Joseph's life is very messy. He was displaced, clearly abused, sold into slavery, believed to be dead by his own father, then accused of adultery in Egypt and left for dead in prison. And yet, in all of that, God's hand is present and Joseph eventually, after a lot of pain, becomes prime minister of Egypt and a good one. He saves many lives including the life of his own family. Look at page 44 of your Bibles for a moment. It's in Genesis 50. This is towards the end of his messy journey after 13 chapters of twists and turns, betrayals and lives. Read them this week. In verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us? That wouldn't be unusual and pays us back for all the wrongs we did. Now that dad's dead, maybe he's gonna be free 
to hurt someone, to hurt us. What if Joseph responds to all the mess in his life with a bitter heart? If you ask me, that's pretty normal. What if Joseph has his hard life and responds to it with hardness, with hate in his heart? Plenty of people do that. You know them. Perhaps you're one of them. Verse 18, his brothers came and threw themselves down before him. They bow before him. We'll come to that. We are your slaves, they said. And what does Joseph say? He could have slammed them, right? He could have said, you know those dreams? They came true, right? He could have done that. Instead, he says, verse 19, but do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? May that never be so. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Just as an aside, the idea that am I in the place of God, and most people say no, but I'm going to contend in the third week that that is in fact the mode of most Australians. Come back. If I wanted to answer the question about the presence of God in our lives, I'd need to own three things from the story of Joseph. Number one, I'd need to know... <laughs> quoting Genesis 50 verse 20, the structure of my sermon printed in your little handouts is from Genesis 50 verse 20, you meant evil, God meant good for the saving of many lives. You meant evil, I'm going to explore the hidden evil that exists in our hearts and in our families, but God meant good, I'm going to look at the hidden purposes of God for the saving of many lives, and I'm going to explore the hidden grace where God brings order out of chaos. You meant evil, hidden evil. God meant good, hidden purposes for the saving of many lives, hidden grace that we're going to remember when we take bread and wine in a few moments' time. So the story of Joseph, number one, you meant evil. Chapter 37, read to us a moment ago, is the chapter of a family in disarray, something that most of us will know something about. Pretty normal. In verse 2, we find out that Joseph is a young man of 17, which is a difficult age for anyone. He's got something going on in his heart towards his brothers because we're told that he brought their father a bad report about them. You know, back in my day, they used to call it dobbing, now encouraged. But I don't think this is dobbing. I have been told, and Tom will tell me later, he's the expert in Hebrew, I'm told from a commentary that the suggestion in the Hebrew language, there is a suggestion that the report itself is bad, that its report itself has lies in it about his brothers. There's something wrong in this man's heart and there's tension in the family. Why does he have something in his heart like this? Well, who knows the human heart? But it could have something to do with the poison that the father has in his heart and has shared with his family. Namely, in verse 3, we find out that Israel, the name of Jacob, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Now, any parent, and I am one, knows that you're meant to treat all children equally or as equally as you can. But Jacob idolizes Joseph. This son, 4, verse 3, Joseph had been born to him in his old age. And he gives him an ornamented robe, not technicolour, not rainbow, as we tend to think from Andrew Lloyd Webber, the musical. It's probably not even coloured. It was just rich. 
he gives one son a Ferrari and tells all the others to suck it up. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. True for us, true for Jacob. Jacob had an idol in his heart, a treasure, his own son. The crazy thing about idols is that God smashes them down. To idolise another human being is to, is to court danger. And it poisons the family system. Verse 4, when the brothers saw that their fathers loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And then their hate is mentioned in verse 4, verse 5, and verse 8. Then come the dreams. Joseph dreams that he and his brothers were binding sheaths of grain, and then, like your dreams, they're a little bit abstract, but these have meaning. Their sheaths bowed down to his. You say, what? The oldest boys bowing down to the youngest. There's an iron law in those traditional cultures. Oldest boys get the birthright, and more important than the younger ones, God is going to bring into this family the upturning of societal norms. And the brothers hate it. Verse 8. Joseph gets a second dream, and in this second dream, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowed down to me. And say, so, oh dear. You know, I've got to tell you, if you ever have a dream that the sun is bowing down to you, please go and get some help. If I had that dream, especially given the reaction that I had to the last dream, I'd probably have kept it to myself. So at the very best, Joseph is emotionally unintelligent. He can't read the room or he can't read the tent. Oh, that was a bit funnier. Rob Forsyth gave me that joke. Thanks, Rob. The reference to the sun and the moon, of course, is the mum and dad. And so in verse 10, even Joseph's father, Jacob, Israel, even he says, settle down, boy. What happens next is dreadful in any reading. Joseph is sent to check on his brothers, and he finds them not in Shechem, verse 14, but in far off Dothan, verse 17. But a man there is found to tell them he's not here, the man wasn't there, he'd have gone home and said, I couldn't find them. But instead he goes off to Dothan, and as he approaches his brothers, verse 18, within seconds of seeing him, filled with hate, they plot to kill him. Come now, let us kill him. Where, where else have you heard that in the Bible? They conspire to kill him, throw him down a cistern and kill him, then dispose of the body in the desert, come back with a coat covered in blood. But Reuben, the older brother, says no way he tries to rescue his younger brother. Let's just throw him in the cistern, figure out the next steps, which they do, but not until after ripping off the robe. And then we don't get told this, but presumably Reuben left them. They sat then down to eat a meal in verse 25. And the reader gets told nothing about that meal. But later in their lives they admit to one another a terrible truth that no doubt they've been carrying all along. Later in their life, they admit that while they were eating, they could hear Joseph's blood-curdling cries. Because in chapter 42, verse 21, and look at it if you want to, because it's not there in 37, 42, verse 21, they said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother 
we saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. This is a secret that they hold in their hearts that the reader doesn't find out until later. Some foreigners are journeying through, and so they decide to sell Joseph, which they do for 20 shekels of silver, verse 28. Where else in the Bible have you heard such a figure? Reuben then returns. He tears his cloak. They rip up the robe and they cover it with the blood of an animal and then go home and lie to their dad who presumes Joseph to be dead. It's brutal. It's messy, very messy. By the way, Happy New Year. Very complicated. I remember reading about despots who kill their opposition, opposition, you know, shoot them in the head and then hide the death in the newspapers because of a car accident or falling down the stairs. Uh, if you know, uh, Idi Amin did that to Archbishop, Anglican Archbishop Janani Luan in 1977, shot him in the head, car accident. You can Google this stuff. Well, it's like Joseph gave his son, Joseph, a Ferrari. The sons produced a smashed Ferrari and tell his father that Joseph died in the accident. But, verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph on in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. We'll come to him next week. Now, wow, that's the story. All our lives are full of sin and complications. Now, obviously not like, well, I presume not like this, uh, but to varying degrees. All our hearts are full of idols, desires that damage even those we live with and those we love because underneath family life, underneath our lives is hidden depths of brokenness and sin that we don't even know about. You know, because of the temptation to defend self, to see yourself as being in the right, which is the default human position for everybody. Our lives bear it out and so do the lives of our family. So the question is, is God in the middle of the mess? You meant evil. Secondly, God meant good. I love how this is a story to learn from, to listen in on. Not a set of rules about how to do family right. Not a counselling book about the human heart. We need, over three weeks, to be willing to get deep involved in the story in order to gain a new set of eyes, an epiphany. Because if you look closely, you'll see the hidden purposes of God as God takes Joseph on this crazy journey. Because in chapter 37, God is not mentioned once. Now, don't you think that's surprising for a book of the Bible? In a book of the Bible? Esther, by the way, is similar. Is God not present? Is he absent? Is he silent? Is, he, is his hand present for Joseph? Where is his hand? In the first half of Genesis, there's lots of God moments, visions, words, miracles, appearances of God. Not as many as some of us would like, but they're, they're in the beginning of Genesis. But in the second half, there are relatively few. A bit like the book of Acts, actually. When you get into the life of Joseph, you ask, is God present in the mess? But you have to see this like Joseph did. Those brothers... They really intended harm. Call it. It's true. There's no other way to look at it. He could see that. They really did. But in all the intended harm, 
mysteriously, God was working his gracious purposes out. God is present. The dream, it eventually happened. They did bow down, as you heard a moment ago. God was in the mess. Under the surface, God at work. And as you read chapter 37, you could say, well, secularists might call these all coincidences. Joseph goes out to his brothers, but they aren't at Shechem. But there's a man who happens to be walking there to stop Joseph from going home. Further on at Dothan, Reuben is present to save his life, but not present when they sell him. The Ishmaelites happen to be walking by. They sell him to Potiphar, the head of the Egyptian army. That'll be important for next week. Here it is. With God, silence is not absence. That's important for all of us that wrestle with the silence of God. It doesn't mean he's absent. I'm going to prove it to you from the life of Jesus in a moment. He can purpose good while some purpose harm. With God, silence is not absence. In fact, when God is, seems most concealed, it's possible that he may be most present. And in fact, at the heart of the Christian message is a man dying on the cross saying, where are you, God? Come to that. Corrie ten Boom knew this. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch woman, Christian. During the Second World War, she hid Jews from the Nazis in Holland, in the hiding place. They were, she was found out and put in a concentration camp where her sister and I think her father both died. You know, qualified to ask the question, is, where is the hand of God? Qualified. Later, she famously likened the purposes of God to a tapestry. If you know a tapestry, on one side is order and beauty, uh, you know, a picture of some kind. And on the other side, all the mess. You don't have to know the purposes of God in any given moment in order to be able to trust him. In fact, this is what being Christian is. Charles Spurgeon once famously said, God is too good to be unkind and he's too wise to be mistaken and when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Wouldn't it be great if Joseph heard that? Too good to be unkind, too wise to be mistaken, and when we cannot trace his hand, this will be important next week, we must trust his heart. Joseph could say, you intended harm. True. But God intended good. Because unless everything happens in that order, everyone dies in a famine later. What's more, the Messianic line, Israel, Jacob's line, perhaps might have died out. God is there, mysteriously. No mention of God, but he's there, arranging things for the salvation of this family. So thirdly, for the saving of many lives. lives. I live here in Miller's Point, and I had an old neighbour on, on Windmill Street that moved to Sydney to work on the light rail down George Street. Great guy. I asked him what part he was working on, knowing, of course, it's a complicated job. And he said, look, well, the, probably the simplest way to put it is this. He says, everything under the road is my responsibility. His job was everything you can't see, pipes and electrics and tunnels. I don't know. This is not my, not my gig. Tell me if it's yours so that when the light rail went in, there's what you see, the light rail, 
which I caught at the SCG every day for the last four days. It was a joy. There's what you see, the light rail, and there's what you don't see, the business of making it happen. Now stay with me. In the Christian theology, there are two tracks. There's the human one, the one you all see and scramble to live by. And there's the God one, the one you don't yet see. The human one, the one you read about in the Herald, and it is often filled with lies and violence and corruption and bullying and war. And except for wishful thinking, there's plenty of that in the world, it's marked by despair and pain. In the Bible, all of this comes because of sin, a hardness in the human heart, a way of editing God out of our lives. You know, right-click, delete. The God track is what is unseen, that God is doing something. He's got his hand present here, saving many lives, speaking now, present by his spirit, forgiving sins, giving people hope. Join the Hope Explored course if you want an epiphany next week. 12.30, 2.30, grab a bite to eat down here for 4, 4.30. There's a mystery in all of that, and how that mystery works will be the theme and our quest for 2024. I'm looking forward to being a part of it. It's true in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, portrayed by his brothers, victim of domestic violence, left to rot in prison. With only human eyes, Joseph would move to despair. But at the end of his life, he could look back, restored to his family, raised to the highest place in Egypt. He could say, you intended harm, but I can see now that God intended good, the saving of many lives. Two tracks, one full of despair and one full of complicated joy, trust, even though it's difficult. The one thing that is at the center of both tracks is the message of the cross of Jesus Christ, which is what this is all about. Because the earliest Christian message, the earliest Christian message is this. You crucified the Messiah. You really did. But God raised him from the dead. Because at the heart of the Christian story is another Joseph, a better one, and his name is Jesus Christ. Not like Joseph in many ways, He grew in wisdom and stature and obeyed his parents. But he too was treated poorly, betrayed, left for dead, naked, abandoned, crying out, sold for an amount of silver and put down a pit into a grave. They intended harm. He cried out too, like Joseph, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus himself asking questions about the hand or presence of God. But Jesus knew that he had to go into his Egypt, his exile, his death. That's what this is about. Because he knew that if he saved himself, as people ironically said to him, prove that you're Messiah, save yourself. He knew that if he did that, he could not save others. Jesus did not have a death wish, but rather a life wish. For he knew that they intended harm, but God was intending good in this moment, the forgiveness of sins. At the very heart of the faith is the message that God is in the middle of the mess, creating good, bringing order, granting redemption for lost souls like I was. 
And if that's true, then you can trust him even in the chaos. But you might say to me, but you don't know my situation. And look, I know many of your situations, I really do. But I don't know all of you. I mean, some visiting here today. You could say, you don't know my heart, you don't know my sadness, my grief, my family, my ailing body. You're right, I I probably don't know. But I can tell you the future. I can tell you that there's a mystery in the gospel that God knows how to take, make a mess and redeem it. And we know that mess ultimately redeemed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But now, I can't tell you, I'll show it to you. Peter, the apostle, gets put in prison in Acts and he gets miraculously released. John the Baptist gets put in prison. They behead him. I don't know the future, but I can say that God is in the middle of the mess, not the cause of the mess. We'll explore that in 2024. Somehow strangely, mysteriously sovereign over it. Romans 8 then becomes one of the most remarkable passages of Scripture. And I'm going to conclude by praying Romans 8.28, which was read to us before the way we'll close our service. I'm going to pray Romans 8.28 before we take bread and wine together. Let's pray. Father, each of us are facing 2024 with different eyes, and maybe there are some of us that can see how complicated and strange and messy things really are. And maybe they're really messy. But somehow, somehow, mysteriously, you're working your good, making us more like Christ. And maybe it'll take time as it took for Joseph. But we know that in all things, all things, you work for the good of those who love you and who have been called according to your purpose. Amen.